Welcome to the first episode of Desire to Destiny, a podcast where we explore the mystery behind our deepest desires and how they can make us happier human beings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Larson, but please just call me doctor. Now, as I record this episode, I realize that we're currently swimming in a sea of uncertainty with the threat of the rapidly spreading coronavirus. And I'm sure that during this time, there are certain parts of your life that are put on pause. Uh, Maybe you have slowdowns at work or unemployment that you're facing. Uh, Maybe you have different community events that you're used to engaging in and gatherings you're used to going to that are just not available to you. Well, at the same time, there are certain things that feel sped up, uh, the overwhelming feeling in the health sector. And if you're working in that field, just the sense of anxiety that rises with it. Uh, Home life might be a little more chaotic with kids staying home that we're used to sending to school. And during this time, I know that we're all going to learn a lot about ourselves. There's a reevaluation of priorities. There's a rethinking how we take care of one another in a community. There's discovering of a lot of different emotions around the anxieties financially and at home and for loved ones that we care for, what might happen. And maybe there's even a kid or two that you're going to find at home you didn't realize you had. Well, that's great. That's what this podcast is really all about. Not discovering hidden children in your home, but rather a journey of self-discovery through the lens of desire. And since so many of us are on shutdown right now, the good news is this journey doesn't even require leaving your living room. So let's get started with these poetic words of a scholar from the 1980s. You live for love, I long for it. You give for love, I take from it. This friend of mine, desire, this lover's crime, desire, emotion driving all the time, a burning need for things not mine, desire, desire, desire. You reach for love, I walk from it. You fight for love, I run from it. My enemy, desire, caressing me, desire. The torch I carried burnt my hand, I can't control what I can't stand. And the pain and the lust and the want and the hurt and the lies, and the fear, and the urge, and the feel, and the touch, and it's all a friend I call desire. Okay, so the scholar in question is actually a musician. Uh, His name is James Midge, or lead singer from the band Ultravox, and these words come from a 1984 pop song entitled, A Friend I Call Desire. But even if he's not technically a scholar, there is much wisdom in these words. When he speaks, or sings, as it were, about his troubled relationship with desire, Midge speaks to the ongoing conflict each of us has between what we want in life and what we get when we go after it. Now, I see the tension from the song on display on a daily basis in the work I do with teenage boys in treatment for substance use disorder. These boys that I work with live in a residential treatment environment with set schedules, limited freedoms, and 24 hours a day of supervision. And they come from a variety of different backgrounds, some from more well-to-do families that are in a cohesive family unit, others that are split apart, others with instability and basic needs like where they live and the food that they eat from day to day and the clothes that they put on their back. But all of them basically got there for the same reason. All of them got there by chasing the objects of their desire, the often illegal objects of their desire, without regard for the consequences. 
Now, this could mean that they stole money, cars, clothes, food, etc., um, because they felt that it would make them happier or if it was a legitimate need that they had at the time. They may have even done it on behalf of their family who didn't have enough to eat or enough things at home. Um, but a lot of times they've had run-ins with the law like that. Many of them tell stories of running away from police officers or getting in altercations. Um, beyond ones that they would have with law enforcement, many of them settle their disputes and conflicts in life through violence. They have a history of physical altercations at school, at home, in the community, and they often see this as uh, a means of providing honor to their lives, of righting perceived injustices. That's why they fight. That's why they come at people. They also many times come in highly sexualized with poor understandings of how to relate to and with women, how to think about and how to talk about, how to uh, develop a healthy relationship with them. Um, And all of these things get mixed in with just being a teenager with the immature, underdeveloped brain. And this gets mixed in because they're in the facility where I meet them at. It means not only do they have these different behaviors and these different family histories that are part of them, but they always, their behaviors always include the use of a variety of mind and mood altering substances. Um, and this doesn't really matter if they have a stable home life uh, where they know where they're going to go to sleep at night and they know the food they're going to eat and they, they have a cohesive family unit, these kinds of things. The anxiety of just the relationship between mom and dad or between siblings can be too much for them. And they say, I have to use to manage my anxiety. Uh, For others, it's to generate courage and self-confidence in social settings. They just don't feel uh, confident enough in themselves unless they are high on something. Others will tell me that it creates greater levels of focus. They say, it helps me focus, it helps me pay attention, helps me get things done, that they can only achieve goals that are meaningful to them if they have these drugs helping them focus. Or simply to sustain a general state of euphoria. Many of them will just say, I just feel happier. I just feel happier when I'm on these drugs, uh, when I'm drinking, when I'm smoking, when I'm popping pills. As many a kid has told me, everything I do is better when I'm high. Of course, every one of these kids that tells me that these drugs make life better uh, also admits that they hate being in the facility that they're in. They hate the fact that they're in an inpatient treatment facility to treat their addiction. And they wish they could just get out of it. They wish they could get off of probation. They wish they could uh, stop going to detention centers. They wish that they didn't have to deal through all of these things. But it's very difficult for them at the same time to connect how these drugs that they take that they think are helping them achieve one set of goals are also interfering with them being able to continue to achieve those goals with the freedom that they want, with the relationships that they want. And they can't seem to put the two pieces together that this is not the best way to get at what they really want. One of the best descriptions I have heard from the young people I work with of this tension that's going on is when one of them said to me, you know, I'm a Pisces, right? And I said, okay, you're a Pisces. What does that mean to you? And he went on to explain, well, a Pisces is symbolized by two fish swimming in opposite directions. So it's like, no matter how much I want to swim in one direction, I'm continually pulled in the other direction at the same time. And you and I both know this goes beyond an issue of age or somebody's zodiac sign. Uh, This is something we all face. We all experience going after those things that we're continually hoping will satisfy, even when we know full well they won't. 
even as we're being pulled in a complete opposite direction. And so we sit down with a quart of Ben and Jerry's Chunky Monkey ice cream the day after we swore on our new diet, or we return to the forbidden embrace between the sheets, or with the on-screen images of seduction in search of some form of intimacy that never really satisfies, or we indulge in another late-night Netflix binge looking for some story to be inspired by with meaning and purpose, or we take another drink, or pop another pill, or get enraged at another news headline that we have to respond to and let people know how we feel about it. And whether we long for intimacy, for good health, for justice, for revenge, for power, for wealth, for acceptance, or simply a moment of tranquility, we find ourselves forever chasing objects that are promising to meet those desires and forever failing to keep good on their word. And even worse, even worse, these pursuits point to the agonizing truth that we may not know what it is we really want. This is the experience that Midge is speaking to in his song. This desire that motivates us, inspires us, and delights us, also frustrates us, annoys us, and yes, can even destroy us. Of course, Midge is not alone in speaking to this tension. Centuries earlier, Plato said, We are fired into life with a madness that comes from the gods, and which would have us believe that we can have a great love, perpetuate our own seed, and contemplate the divine. What Midge ironically calls a friend, Plato calls madness. It's this madness, this stirring within that makes us believe in love, It drives us to build a legacy to be remembered by, and it draws us towards eternal matters. But in saying that it comes from the gods, Plato places the origin of our deepest desires that are within us beyond us. You see, it's not simply something buried at the inmost parts of our being. It's also something that is completely transcendent. This hidden part of us, this deep desire stirring within us, this madness, this passion, this friend, this enemy. It's bigger than all of us. And the tension of how to deal with it is intrinsic to our human experience. This is no doubt why every major religion or worldview espouses its own rules and tools for how to respond to desire in such a way that those desires can be managed to lead to a happy life. However, it's been my experience that despite the wealth of information that there is discussing the topic of desire from various religious backgrounds and worldviews and human perspectives, despite all of this knowledge that's out there, the common practice with people that I encounter on a regular basis is often woefully inadequate for leading to a healthy relationship with desire. Instead, I see a lot of extreme behaviors, uh, a lot of uh, emotionally driven or emotionally detached ways of engaging them. And the fear that desires tend to create has led to different extreme responses. It's been helpful for me to kind of categorize these, to understand the main responses. And so I have playfully labeled three different categories of unhealthy responses to desires. These categories are the escapists, the chasers, and the Costanzites. Uh, Allow me a few moments to describe each one. First of all, you have the escapist. Now, these are the ones who try to keep distance 
between themselves and their desires. They don't see this whole idea of a friend or a helpful quality to desires. Rather, they see only the danger in them. They distrust them. They might label them as unholy, or they fear that engaging their desires will only lead to suffering. Their motto is repress, ignore, detach, deny, whatever it takes to keep your desires out of your awareness and out of your life. The real challenge for this group is the continual fear that they live in over their desires. Since at all costs, they're just trying to get away from their desires. There's this perpetual fear anytime those are coming close, anytime they think there might be some sense of themselves or their desires getting into it, they back away from it. And what this means is not that they actually get away from their desires, it's more that they live dishonestly detached from them, that they are not really connected to the ways they're influencing their behaviors, their relationships, etc., etc., all their life decisions. But they try to escape as best they can, as impossible as that may be. The second group is in many ways the opposite of the first, and these are the chasers. They are those who would encourage a mostly unrestrained indulgence of their desires. For them, reflection, self-denial are not necessary. Instead, action is. Once again, I see this repeatedly with the kids that I work with. I can't count, I can't count how many times I've been talking to one of the, the young people that I work with, And they say something about one of their peers like, he better not take my seat, or he better not call me that, or he better not have taken my shoes, or any number of other offenses that could have been done before they finish the sentence with this consequence. Because if he did, I'll have to beat his ass. Now, when they share this, I will often point out to them that beating up his peer could lead to great trouble for him. In fact, it's probably why he... He's with us at that point, that he has not been able to control his temper before and has led to bad consequences, but it makes no difference. Uh, When I point out the fact that this reasoning also means his peer has control over him, most kids just shrug at me when I say, look, if every time they do the littlest thing, you decide that you have to beat them up, and then that leads to bad consequences for you, who's in control? And they look at me, shrug their shoulders and say, well, I'll have to do it. And see, for these young men, what's happening is that they see this as a matter of defending their honor. This desire to be respected then dictates how they must behave. In other words, desire is calling the shots and they have to listen. There are many people who are not just in those facilities and are not even self-identified as addicts, who live as chasers, who essentially just want to go after uh, the next desire, the next desire to fulfill it in one aspect of life or another, whether it's in their employment or it's in their recreational opportunities or their relationships. They want to indulge their desires without reflection and without self-denial. All that matters is chasing that next high that comes with the object of your desire. And it's really important to clarify that we're talking about the object of their desire. And in future episodes, we'll address more of the faulty thinking behind that, the the problematic understanding of desire that is espoused by the chasers. But for now, it's enough to realize that these are those individuals who just feel like they cannot be happy unless they have that next thing, that next thing, that next thing. Um, Now, another group, A third group 
a little different from the escapists, a little different from the chasers is one that I've called the Costanzites. And this takes a little bit of explaining. Uh, Costanzites are a strange variation based off of the sitcom character George Costanza from the 1990s hit show Seinfeld. Those of you who are maybe not familiar with this character or with the show, George is a proverbial loser. Nothing he does in life seems to end up the way he wants it to or the way that he thinks it's supposed to. He can't meet any women who are interested in him when he looks for a life mate. He can't sustain uh, any sort of meaningful job or career at 40 years old. He's living at home with his parents, unemployed, and he just can't seem to get life straight. He can't get it in order the way that he thinks he needs to. One day, when he finally realizes that every decision that he makes leads to an unintended consequence or leads to a bad conclusion, he decides he's going to stop doing what he's always done, what his impulses have led him to, and start doing the opposite. And as he does, success begins to come his way. He immediately meets a beautiful woman and strikes up a relationship with her. Soon she helps him get a connection to a great job working for the New York Yankees. And life just starts to go on an upward trend. He moves into an apartment that he's been eyeing for some time. And his life gets better and better and better. All because he does the opposite of what he's inclined to do. And he finally expresses to his friends, Jerry and Elaine, what's going on. He says, I am completely ignoring every urge towards common sense and good judgment I've ever had. This is no longer just some crazy notion. This is my religion. See, in a nutshell, Costanzites admit that they are clueless about what it takes to really be happy when it comes to their desires, but they're also too lazy to do the work to figure it out. They admit that they have the longing of the chasers, but they live in the fear of the escapists. And so they treat desire like the proverbial enemy that you keep closer than a friend, because at least it can't hurt you that way. Uh, And they endlessly seek happiness while living perpetually in a state of self-loathing and shame. And while this might be hilarious fodder for a sitcom, when it comes to real life, it's merely tragic. Now, Hopefully, you don't fit into one of these camps, especially not in the extremes of it. Hopefully, your approach to desire is healthier than these caricatures. But I've got to be honest that there are times when I have found myself in any one of the three um, where I've been afraid of desires that seem to have burned me in the past and I try to get away from them, when I've been felt uncontrollably pulled towards the object of the things that I desire, assured Uh, sure that it would bring me what I really wanted, the happiness that I was after, or when I've just felt overwhelmed by trying to figure out the internal workings of my soul and my heart and all that stuff and just didn't know how to handle this madness within. But no matter where you stand on those camps and if you find yourself to be firmly in some others, the truth is that we all adopt, adapt, and create our own ways to handle this madness. We all embrace one form or another of a desire management system that will help us navigate our relationship with the longings within us. And it's only natural that we would because this longing, this madness, this churning within us, it's never ending. It has to be expressed in some way because a desire once met does not disappear. 
In fact, many times it comes back stronger than before. The wise King Solomon millennia ago said, all things are full of weariness and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear with hearing. And just think of how often you have enjoyed a beautiful sunset and wanted to see it again. Think of how many times you've heard a favorite song and wanted to hear it again. So Solomon says, the eye is not satisfied, the ear is not satisfied. And certainly he could have added many other body parts to that list. And in some of his other writings, he did. Uh, But the point is that these desires come back again and again and again. Or as Ronald Rollheiser put it, desire is always stronger than satisfaction. In other words, we don't always get what we want. And even when we do, it isn't enough. We always want more. And so whether we're escapists or chasers or stanzites or some other form uh, of managing these desires, our desire management systems are the responses that we come up with to try to control, harness, repress, deny, direct, or simply survive these powerful energies within. But I wonder if there's something more to those desires that we're often missing. I wonder if in many of our systematic approaches to managing these wild things within us, this madness, this fire, I wonder if we haven't unwittingly become hostile to our own soul. What if these desires weren't meant to be controlled? What if they weren't meant to be repressed? What if they weren't meant to be managed or merely indulged? What if they were not meant to be opposed? What if desire is not our foe? What if this madness from the gods, this fire in the belly, this wildness inside each of us was meant to be our friend? And not in the ironic sense of the song that we listened to earlier, but in the genuine and life-giving way. What if we could be friends with the flame, with the wildness within? For me, this question brings to mind Maurice Sendek's classic children's story, Where the Wild Things Are. A book that was initially banned from many school and public libraries has now become an iconic tale for how children process their anger and survive the frustrating emotional challenges of being misunderstood by the adults around them. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, the tale is about a young boy by the name of Max, who one day, like many other days, decides to dress in one of his favorite costumes, an outfit that makes him look like a wild beast of some sort. It's all furry and covers him from head to toe. And when he comes out, he acts like a wild thing. And he goes around growling and and jumping up and down on things, potentially uh, biting people, um, as kids will do from time to time in their pretend. And one of these days, he comes downstairs, and he gets a little too rambunctious. And in doing so, he is met with the consequence that his mother sends him to his room without dinner. Well, Max is furious about this, and he goes storming up to his room. But while he's in his room, he travels away in a place in his imagination. And his room suddenly uh, becomes filled with uh, different trees and things around him, and soon he's sailing on a ship off to a different island, a place far away where the wild things are. 
And when Max arrives, he sees all these different creatures that, uh, in the author's telling later, were essentially the, the way he felt as a child about some of his relatives, the, the way they looked like wild things to him, like different creatures from the wild, which, let's be honest, a lot of us, even past our childhood, probably look at different family members and say, you're basically a wild beast. In any case, this was Max's story, and when he got to this island with the wild things, he quickly decided that he needed to be in control of them. He was to be king of this place. And once he became king, once he demonstrated that he deserved to have control of the place and all the wild things were looking and listening to him, he then gave out the command, let the rumpus begin. And from that point, they began to party and shriek and make noise and climb trees and be rambunctious and jump all over and do all the kind of rowdy things that kids love to do and adults are always interrupting with. Well, soon the time came for that play to be done and Max let them know, it's time to stop, it's time for you to go to sleep. And they all did, because of course Max was king and he was in control at this particular moment. And now that he had control, and all the other wild things were sleeping, his anger began to subside, and he soon discovered a buried desire beneath the anger that he had lost sight of. Lost sight of. And the climactic moment of the story reads this way. And Max, the king of all wild things, was lonely and wanted to be where someone loved him best of all. You see, as it turns out, what Max really wanted was not to be in control. Max wanted to be connected. Uh, Max wanted to be loved. He wanted to be accepted. And he was struggling with how to make that happen. The anger was a a result of a desire unmet, and the journey, the chaotic journey that is represented by uh, a trip to the island where the wild things are, is not unlike the journey that a lot of us go through to uncover our true desires. Now, as we grow, we may be less prone to throwing tantrums like Max did when we don't get our way, but the challenge of processing our wild emotion to find peace with our truest desires to be friends with the wild things in each of us. That challenge never goes away. And if we're going to find the resolve that Max did, we all must take that journey to where the wild things are. We all must do that inner work, that introspection, that reflection, that digging. We all have to courageously engage our confusing emotions and inner turmoil with the same tenacity as Max. This may mean a different way of thinking about our desires, different ways of feeling through your desires, and certainly different ways of relating to your desires, to others, and to God. And that's what this podcast is all about. The journey to discovering your deepest desires, to knowing them, to naming them, and yes, maybe even befriending them. The real question for us is are we brave enough to take that journey? I hope so. And if you say yes, the good news is that much like Max, our journey doesn't even require leaving our house. And I hope you'll tune in for the next episode dropping in a couple of weeks where we start to get better acquainted with these desires of ours. 
Until then, this is Dr. Mike saying peace and love, everyone. And please wash your hands. <laughs>